Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. On the pod today, we will be joined by one of the great legal minds of our time and the author of the new book, Impeachment, A Citizen's Guide, our pal Cass Sunstein. And we're also going to have a special guest calling in later, Senator from Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren. Get out of here. Yeah. she. Cool. We, late last night, we... Uh, Did you run into her, Logan? How'd you have this happen? <laughs> you know, yeah, late last night they reached out because we're going to talk about um, the showdown. The showdown yeah. at the OK Corral this morning. Yeah. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. We're going to try Mulvaney. to say the full name of it as many times as possible. Vanny and his... Uh, so we don't want to abbreviate that crap. His usurpation of power and donuts. <laughs> he brought donuts. Mulvaney brought donuts, which is what we brought Elizabeth Warren the first time she was on the show. That is true. Okay, before we get to that... Before we get to that, hello guys. How was hey. your Thanksgiving? How are my little stuffed turkeys? How are you guys feeling? <sighs> How's the shame? I feel fine. I feel great. You know, everyone's uh, in it together. <laughs> Post Thanksgiving shame. I don't feel great. Love it. Why don't you tell us about uh, Love It or Leave It? I have a space for a Love It or Leave It promo because it's Monday. We have a great episode of Love It or Leave It <laughs> coming your Leave way it in. with it in. some of my favorite guests. No, this is, you're supposed to promote the one from uh, that was over the weekend, which was the second show at the Beacon. Oh, our second Beacon show was awesome. We there had uh, Bravo's I Andy, Bravo Andy. Home. We had Andy Cohen. We had Bravo Francesca. Andy. Bravo Andy. We had Francesca Ramsey. We had David Diggs. We had Muriel Borst Tarrant, who is a Native American actor and comedian and writer uh, who talked about Thanksgiving. We had an acapella group, the Vineyard Sound. Not over the top at all. Singing the love it or leave it theme. It was... uh, When we first realized that an acapella group had done the opening to love it or leave it, there were many texts sent between me and Tommy. John and I were not not necessarily friendly, but we thought it was funny, so we went with it. (laughs) I know you guys Uh, text about me. No, you were on them. Oh, good. Okay, good. Okay, good. My brother texted me about it and said, "I just want you to know this. This is when it all. This is when it all went south." He goes, "If we're if we need to look back at a certain moment when it went over the top, this it was it." Andy Andy doesn't Tabra. weigh in a lot, but when he does, it's pretty funny. Yeah. yeah. Funny. The, um, and also, by the way, we played a game where we actually played the hardest game we ever played, which was forcing people to recognize the difference between Breitbart headlines, Fox News headlines, and fake Russian ads. Oh, nice! And it was That's a great game. It was, and man, Peggy. The entire it was really hard, but the entire beacon was chanting her name. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Go cool. Anyways, good episode. Pod Save the World? Yeah. So the, the episode that's up right now is with an Africa expert named Johnny Carson. I went to the swamp, to Washington, D.C., to the United States Institute of Peace to sit down with him. We talked about Robert Mugabe. Ambassador Carson was in the Foreign Service for 37 years. hey First met Mugabe in 1974 that's in some random... I know. In some random, you know, airport in the middle of of Africa, it's like that's the kind of history and relationships you get from all these people who are now being uh, unceremoniously shoved out of the State Department. But I digress. By an oil seat. Talked about Zimbabwe. We talked about uh, elections in Kenya and U.S. policy generally. So check it out. And uh, Majority 54 is up uh, with the second episode. Jason talks to a former CIA officer about Trump's ongoing campaign against the American intel community. Seems like he's uh, trending into your territory there, Tommy. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> and we're going. I'm going to make a video of me assembling a podcast mic with a blindfold and just like direct it at Jason. Like an attack guy. <laughs> and, uh, and we're going on tour again the end of this week, guys. We're going to be in Santa Barbara Friday night. I think we finally sold out that uh, show, but who knows? There we're traveling again this week? We are. Sacramento Saturday night and uh, Oakland, California on Monday. Huh. Great. So have a whole tour. There's a lot to talk about, guys. Yeah, let's go. I want to start with a quick update on the most urgent topic. That is the Donor Relief Act of 2017. (laughs) This is uh, Mitch McConnell's determination to pass 
$1.4 trillion worth of tax cuts and tax increases through the Senate by Friday. So this is it, guys. This this is why Republicans have put up with Donald Trump's creeping authoritarianism, mm-hmm. the mafia-style corruption, the casual racism. This is the main event. <laughs> the deranged tweets. They did this so that they could wake up and make ultra-rich people even richer with a bunch of tax cuts. So this is it. This is the big event, which means that they will stop at nothing to get this done. It is a bad bill. It is an unpopular bill. No one really likes it. It sort of breaks all of their promises. It's going to explode the deficit. It's going to... It's like Republicans could have written a bill, like George W. Bush did, that was skewed heavily towards the wealthy and how much tax breaks it gives, and then just gives like sort of chump change to the middle class and to everyone Mm -hmm. else. But they couldn't even get that right. No. They're raising taxes. Raising. Raising over about half of all families will see a tax increase by 2027. <laughs> Can I tell you my this favorite part? This is fucking part? nuts. <laughs> Can I tell you my favorite part please, about the bill? Please, The provisions that essentially adjust for inflation are permanent. So the tax mm. breaks they're codifying are permanent, but the tax cuts, the tiny little measly ones in the short term, go away. But the corporate tax breaks right, the corporate break, forever as cor- well. Corporate tax so breaks are people, permanent. So the people, every chance they, try to, they got, they screwed over working people. Yeah. So, yeah, winners... The top 0.1% get an average tax cut of $200,000. That's pretty nice for them. Uh, corporations get a 43% cut in taxes. Uh, that's good for them. And then, of course, there's the 0.2% of multimillionaires and billionaires like Ivanka, Don Jr., and Eric, who get all their inheritances tax-free. Losers. 67 million households earning less than $100,000 who will have to pay higher taxes immediately. And then, of course, like I said, the half of all Americans will see a tax Hike in 2027, and another big loser, the deficit. Of course, this is not paid for. So the question, can they get this done, and how do we stop them? They definitely can get this done. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's playing out very similarly to healthcare, but, like, healthcare was their passion. Cutting taxes is their job, you know? <laughs> uh, uh, healthcare is like their hobby. Right, right. Healthcare, right. This healthcare is, the, is, this, this, is the call, away. this is their calling. This is why they get into politics. This is what, this is what Paul, Paul Ryan, when he was standing around the keg, he was talking about how to, you know, take Medicaid and turn it into tax cuts for people. Well, right. And, and you know, the one-two step of this, it's step one, create a $1.5, $1.7, $1.4 trillion hole with tax cuts that are targeted at corporations and the wealthy, and then a year or two from now, come back and say, what are we going to do about this big hole? Well, there's only one thing we can do, further cut Medicaid, further cut Medicare, further cut Social Security, and all the rest. So, you know, this is the plan, and this is why they're there. This is what Paul Ryan believes. All the deficit talk didn't matter. All the attacks on on Obama being unfit for office don't matter. This is it. This is why Republicans are Republicans. And so some of our favorite uh, "Quote unquote Republican heroes uh, from the healthcare battle are not knows yet. You know, right before we all left for Thanksgiving, uh, Lisa Murkowski mm-hmm. in an op-ed in a local Alaska paper uh, said she was fine with them adding the repeal of the individual mandate uh, in the Affordable Care Act, which is basically partial Obamacare repeal uh, into this bill, uh, even though." The Congressional Budget Office, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, says that uh, repeal of the individual mandate would increase the number of uninsured by 13 million. Seems bad. And raise premiums by an additional 10% year over year. Seems bad, too. 
Ten percent. Is that good politics or bad politics? So that's basically, as Susan, as Republican Susan Collins said, that kind of premium increase is basically going to wipe out any of the tax cut that most that said some middle class families actually receive from this. Now, so Murkowski in that op-ed also, and her spokesman made clear made this clear. She's not a definite yes vote, mm-hmm. but she's she wrote that op-ed about the individual mandate. I don't know to pave the way for the yes vote. We don't know why she did what she did. So that's Murkowski's deal. Then we have a couple of other people who are on the fence. Jerry Moran in Kansas, he was on the fence for a little bit during the health care debacle. And he held a town hall uh, over, the, over the break, which did not go super well. But kudos, <laughs> kudos to him for holding it in the first yeah. place because no one else is no doing that. Um, but Jerry Moran did. And he basically told people he's undecided because he thinks it'll – uh, bust the deficit, which he's correct about, and he's not sure about adding health care into the mix. So there's a p- couple people like Moran, and of course there's Jeff Flake, there's Bob Corker, and, there are John, and there's John McCain. Again, all three of these folks, they like giving tax breaks to the wealthy they always have, so we can't expect them to completely change their stripes for this. But all three of them have made their concerns known about this process, which is just as bad as the healthcare process. Mm-hmm. No debates, no big public hearings, no nothing. And they seemingly care less about the details than they did uh, around ACA repeal. They're just like, yeah, eh, whatever, state and local taxes. Like the, the, all the deductions and things, it would seem like it would really upset New York members of Congress or California members have sort of washed out in the end. Right. They're not really fighting for the things <laughs> that not are going to f- come to bite them in the ass at, during the elections. Totally. I- and, and look, and Flake and Corker particularly said that they have real problems with uh, what this is going to do to their deficit. So bas- basically what they're going to do here, at the, the Republicans are trying to have it both ways. They're saying, no, 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 you keep saying uh, taxes are going to go up on middle class families, but uh, that's only if Congress doesn't renew the tax cuts for middle class families. Of course Congress will renew tax cuts for middle class families when 2027 rolls around. Well, if Congress does do that, the deficit will increase by even more than the $1.5 trillion it's already going to increase by. So they, they can't actually have it both ways. And, and by the way, Congress has lashed itself to the mass <laughs> over and over again and then crashed anyway. That's what happened with the sequester. That's what's happened with shutdowns. That's what's come close to happening with the debt ceiling. If you, you know, the sequester, if you remember, was this thing where they built a, a ticking time bomb into into the budget that said if we don't come to an agreement by a certain time, there are these drastic cuts to defense, drastic cuts to discretionary spending, and then the bomb went off, and right. it just happened anyway. So the idea and 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 look, you know, the idea that these guys are like, don't worry, ten years from now we'll fix it. Like that's ridiculous. Yeah. They they want to make the corporate tax rates permanent because, in fairness to them, they are they believe that. Uh, fixing up the corporate tax code, cutting the the rate, you know, broadening the base, and having it be predictable might lead to further investment. But they're doing it at the expense of the middle class, of of working people, of anyone who's not, you know, going to benefit from the stock increase of of major companies and small businesses and yeah. small businesses. So let's talk about the politics of this for Flake, Corker, and McCain. <clears throat> they vote no on this, right? If they decide to vote no on this and tank this bill. They don't have to worry about Breitbart. Yeah, they don't have cares. to worry about Sean Hannity. They're not going to face voters again. None of them are running for re-election. But, but also, I mean, the, the bill has a 52% disapproval, right. 25% approval via Fox News, right. that liberal organ. A lot uh, of their base. So 
they might have a problem in a primary, but not a general election. Right, right. Jeff Flake and John McCain in Arizona have a lot of those, you know, it's a, a growing suburban population mm-hmm. there that are going to face a lot of these tax increases. Uh, like suburban people and swing voters in suburban districts are going to face tax increases all over the country, which mm-hmm. is why it's yet another reason why this is awful politics for the Republicans. So, I, I, you know, John McCain gets so much credit for his no vote on health care reform, which he should have, which he deserved. And, you know, there was a, there was a quote today where he, he told Mike Pence during the health care reform debate, I'm not going to vote for something called skinny repeal. It's ridiculous. You yeah. Know? Well, this is this would be voting for skinny repeal. Mm-hmm. And so all of that goodwill that John McCain rightfully earned after his health care vote it, it should be taken away if he votes yes for this. Because, again, it's not like we expect him to vote for liberal policies, but he he has exclaimed that he doesn't want something that increases the deficit. He doesn't want something that's out of regular order. He doesn't want something that's skewed too heavily to the wealthy. And this bill does all of these things. By Corker, Flake, McCain, Collins, Murkowski, by their own ideological tests, tests mm-hmm. nothing to do with Trump at all, by their own ideological tests, they should be all voting no on this, but they're afraid to. I mean, the other thing, too, just like sort of stepping back from it, this <laughs> it's not like America doesn't have problems that could be addressed in the tax code. You know, it. Yeah, it, know. this is you've been taught you've been. It's crazy. It's a crazy thing to do. Like corporations are sitting on tons of profit. The reason they're not investing, the reason they're not hiring more, the reason they're not raising wages is not because they don't have money on, you know, just money in their bank accounts economic insecurity in the middle class, people trying to fucking get jobs and expenses, all the problems that we talk about all the time, like this is a bill to make them worse. It is mm-hmm. complete. It is a like, there's just no reason for it. There's no reason for their tax plan to be this terrible. It doesn't simplify the tax code. The The favorite Paul Ryan talking point is that it could fit on a postcard and make it easier for everybody. That's just not the case. This is bizarre sunsets. Things phase in, they phase out, they screw over people at certain levels, they change the way all kinds of deductions and state and local uh, property taxes or state and local income taxes are taxed at a federal level. It's it's a disaster. And there are good reasons. Like if you did something like whatever, revenue neutral tax reform, which involved not raising the deficit and you had a principle that said we're going to be we're not going to be regressive, we're going to make sure the benefits accrue down, you could get democratic votes for getting rid of a lot of these tax breaks, which it may, there are good arguments for getting rid of them. There are good arguments for simplifying the tax code. But there's no good argument for telling people that are living in an expensive place, oh, you're going to pay a little bit more for your house so that the DeVos family inherits more when they die. Yeah, it, it seems like the only guiding principle for this tax legislation is that they needed to give a huge and permanent tax cut to corporations. And however they had to pay for that, whoever they had to raise taxes on, they were just going to go ahead and do it. And the donors and the billionaire donors. They needed they needed th- that this is payment coming due. So they have to reduce the estate tax because they all want that. Because they need the donors to be on board because they're also – they've allowed themselves to believe that it is – much more difficult to face voters if they don't pass anything than if they pass something that raises taxes on those very voters. <laughs> they have they have convinced themselves that this is true, so that's that's their problem. Uh, there's another reason McConnell wants to get this done by the end of the week. The government runs out of money on December 8th and will shut down. McConnell and Paul Ryan need Democratic votes to keep the government open. And if the government shuts down on December 8th, they cannot pass these tax cuts. And they will not pass these tax cuts by the end of the year. And so this week, Donald Trump meets with congressional leaders, both Republicans and Democrats, to see if they can't strike another deal. So there's a lot a lot of moving parts to these negotiations on the government. But on the agenda here is possibly funding Obamacare, funding those cost-sharing reduction payments, 
passing something like the Alexander Murray bill that will stabilize Obamacare. Mm-hmm. There's passing the DREAM Act that will basically save undocumented young Americans from being deported. Both Lindsey Graham and Jerry Moran said they were interested in doing that. Maybe there's a deal on the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. I mean, Democrats can walk in there with a long list of demands. The question is, what should those demands be? And what should our message be around this? So far, Schumer has, Schumer and Pelosi have sort of danced around saying, they don't want to say, we'll shut the government down, which is right, partly because it wouldn't be the Democrats just shutting the government down. Republicans control all three branches of government. If they wanted to find the votes to keep the government open, they could do that. They can't because they got a bunch of crazies in their caucus. It's also, it's also just a strange game theory thing, which is the more amenable Pelosi and Schumer look right now to compromise, the more likely Republican hardliners will draw a line in the sand and force McConnell to go to them. So because if Pelosi, if Pelosi and Schumer were out there saying, we're not voting for anything unless we get this, 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 we get stabilization, we get dreamers, we get all the rest. All of a sudden, McConnell can take that, just literally print that out and show it to whatever, Mark Meadows, and say, help. <laughs> if yeah. we don't do this, look what they're going to get. So there's a game that they're playing, which I understand. Yeah. But, I mean, what everyone should know is if we can even delay – so, the, so basically, the Senate Budget Committee is voting tomorrow on this tax legislation. Uh, Corker and Flake sit on that committee, so that could tell us something right there. On Thursday, McConnell hopes to have this up for a vote. If we can even delay this to next week, there is a chance that we get to no- December 8th, and then we're talking about government shutdowns, and then they're going to have a hard time passing this. So, yes. And if we delay it a couple weeks after that, that is when the new senator from Alabama will be seated, which we'll talk about in a second. So, can I ask a question before we get to that? So, what is the status of the thing they're actually going to pass? Has there been any any leak about what the compromise is between the House and the Senate yet? There has not as of yet. No. So, right Ama- now, ama- if they, amazing. If, right now, if the Senate passes something Thursday, they would have to go into a conference to resolve the differences between the House legislation and the Senate legislation, which are vast, but not, you know, irreconcilable. But... Unless one thing that could happen over the next couple of days is McConnell and Ryan and a couple other people could just work out a compromise that then McConnell puts on the floor as their bill, and then they could just pass it all right there. So we don't we haven't heard anything yet uh, new about that. In order to stop this, go to easiest thing to do: go to TrumpTaxScam.org. It will give you the numbers of senators to call. It will give you if you're in a red state or a blue state. It will help you. Get in touch with friends in red states or in purple states to call those senators, to call wavering senators. It will show you events that are in your area that you can go to. There's like a national day of action happening today. There's protests that are going to be happening all week long. But it's all on that website. Go to TrumpTaxGam.org to figure out how you can help. So let's talk about the Senate race in Alabama. Roy Moore. Roy Moore. Hero. So this morning, Donald Trump, the, the White House announced that Donald Trump will not be going to Alabama to campaign with alleged child molester that is, Roy Moore. <laughs> these distinctions are so stupid. Yeah, you're he's all, all in, in, buddy. He's you're, all you're in. getting pissed off and tweeting every morning. He's all in. The tweet from Sunday. The last thing we need in Alabama in the U.S. Senate is a Schumer-Pelosi puppet who is weak on crime, weak on the border, bad for our military. Jones would be a disaster. Jones being the man who prosecuted the Ku Klux Klan members who murdered four young women. <laughs> This, this race is a national – it's a billboard from the GOP that says Republicans to women, fuck you. Right. We don't care. Because, d- and Roy, children. Roy Moore's <laughs> campaign strategist, Dean Young, said, and I quote, 
We believe Judge Moore. We don't believe these women. It's just that simple. And y'all can keep trotting them out if you want to, but we're not going to talk about that. He refuses to even gauge on the subject of, of the fact that Roy Moore is accused of sexually assaulting or molesting children over the course of many, many years. Yeah, and you it's know, an evil campaign. And I want I want to just talk for a second about sort of the strength of the evidence here against yeah. Roy Moore. Because, you know, we will in a couple of minutes talk about problems on the Democratic side as well. But there is no comparison, Republican or Democrat, to what Roy Moore has been accused of here. No. Nine women have come forward on the record. Two are Trump supporters, <laughs> one is a Republican. There are supporting witnesses who corroborate these women's stories. There are documents that prove that Moore is lying about his denials. He was banned from the fucking mall. <laughs> okay, he, was ban- like, he was banned from, banned from yeah. mall. William Saladin at Slate wrote up a, a really great list of all the I should say that's where I was paraphrasing from to give him credit. I thought Jake Tapper summarized this well. Like Roy Moore started with a presumption of innocence like everyone does, but he has since forfeited it by lying, by making assertions that are demonstrably false, by having witnesses and documents and self-incriminating statements come forward. I mean, there are not both sides to every issue. No. There's a very clear set of evidence indicating that he did what these women alleged he did. Right. And there's a... New York Times story a couple days ago about sort of Trump's evolution on this, if it was an evolution at all. So Trump believes more. He's angry with his daughter, Ivanka, for saying that there's a special place in hell for people like Moore. And he thinks Moore is being wrongly accused. He thinks it's all made up. It's all about him. And we found out, Tommy, you were especially angry about this. We found out that now Trump is telling people that <laughs> the Access Hollywood, it's made up just like the yeah. Access Hollywood tape is made up. He's trying it out. He's trying it out. He's throwing Floating it into it. conversation. He's like, you know, like this, uh, <laughs> the Access Hollywood tape, which was also fake. <laughs> He's like, I'll have a cheeseburger, uh, a Diet Coke, and the Access Hollywood tape was fake. Um, <laughs> the Access Hollywood, that is... Just seeing, like, how does how does it? What, what's your face do when I tell yeah. you that the access? Oh, oh, you, you're you're with me. You're, you're, I'm powerful enough that if I say the access Hollywood tape, you can't tell me I'm this being is, crazy. This is okay. another one of the times when Maggie Haberman having a bug in his bedroom has been like incredibly valuable. He said it to a senator. He's been telling it to staffers and aides. It's the thing. He's like he's trying to convince himself he believes this because he clearly views the Roy Moore allegations as somehow the same as the accusations made against him, which were on tape. And he knew that it worked out for him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he is what he knows. He believes what he wants to believe. I don't, you know, like the idea that Trump, like Trump's relationship with truth and what he thinks about it is so attenuated at this point. Yeah. That, like, I don't, I don't, I think that it is crazy. he believes what he's in the moment is going to believe. And in this moment, he finds it useful to believe that Roy Marr pe- falsely pe- accused. People keep pointing out, though, like that when you stack up the lies, big and small, and I would call this a big lie. And you, and you <laughs> add to that all the little lies about how, oh, I don't watch TV as he live tweets Fox and Friends. I don't play golf as there's still uh, Instagrams of him at a golf course like every weekend. They are pathological liars. Like This is yeah. a definition of what that means. They lie constantly for no reason, with no <laughs> regard for facts or like our intelligence. You know, it is horrific. And you know what? And we've been so – it's like because everyone believes that – and Trump knows that everyone believes that all politicians lie and that mm-hmm. politicians in both parties lie. So he just does it because he thinks – Eh, everyone thinks we're all liars anyway, so I might as well just tell the biggest whoppers that I can. It's gross. And there is a chance that it could all work here in Alabama. It is an incredibly tight race. Doug Jones has you know, made up a lot of ground in the polls, and Roy Moore has obviously fallen a lot since the scandal. But 
it's tight. You know, I think Jones is 0.8% ahead in the real clear politics average. This could go either way. And, you know. Ultimately, if- this boils down to cynicism. Donald Trump yes. is being a cynic, same way Mitch McConnell is and all the rest. They want to attack Doug Jones. They're trying to say in every way, vote for Roy Moore, even though he's a pedophile, because we need this seat and mm-hmm. we can expel him. If we could dispose of two fictions about our politics, it would so greatly help heal our country. The first is they all do it. They're all bad. They're all the same. The second is my vote doesn't matter. If people would stop believing those two things, I think it would be the most important thing that ever happened to our politics. I think that's right. Especially that last that last one that my vote doesn't matter. If you are – they are – the numbers of Democrats – there are enough people in Alabama that could easily – and this whole thing. Easily. They're easily. Easily happen. So In a low turnout race like this, you could get a couple thousand people in various places and tip an election on any given day, especially in a special election when you're going to see like 14% turnout. Yep. Look at what happened in Virginia. Look at the people who turned out for the first time. Look at the young people who turned out for the first time. Um, Virginia is very, very different from Alabama, which will, of course, get lost if for some reason Roy Moore wins. <laughs> but, <laughs> But... That doesn't mean that people in Birmingham and people in Montgomery can make a big difference here. People in the suburbs of Alabama can make a big difference, go to the polls, and make sure that, uh, that Roy Moore is not, uh, is not the next U.S. We can senator. win a Senate seat in Alabama. And it can change everything. It can change everything. It's one of the most important elections. Uh, it's, you know what? And I'm, we shouldn't have said – like John Ossoff's race – I know that like got a lot of people excited because it was like one of the first races in the mm-hmm. Donald Trump era. An extra Democrat in the House of Representatives, it would have mattered. It would not have mattered nearly as much as what would, yeah. what happens if Doug Jones takes the, the scale seat. of what hinges on this election. It's so is much hard bigger to comprehend than yeah. any of the special. <laughs> it's so much bigger than any of the special elections like that this, we've seen because a lot of what comes after matters too. It's hard to say this, but like. We'll look back and, and what happened with Doug Jones could very well have tipped the, tipped the direction of the country. Yeah. The stakes haven't been bigger in any election we've seen since uh, 2016, but uh, it's also the challenge is harder for Democrats than any challenge we've mm-hmm. seen since 2016. So yeah. pay attention. All right. Let's talk about uh, John Conyers and Nancy Pelosi's appearance on Meet the Press. Oof. We must discuss this. I'd like to just state that that was a very, very, very bad answer uh, that she gave on Meet the Press. Yeah, you think? Let's tell everyone what happened. So Nancy Pelosi's on Meet the Press. She's asked if Conyers should resign. Conyers, again, you might have missed the story. This was a BuzzFeed story right before Thanksgiving. It was revealed that he settled a wrongful dismissal suit in 2015 with an employee who accused him of sexual harassment. Pelosi's answer, she said, we are strengthened by due process. Fine. Then John Conyers is an icon in our country. Bad. Very, very bad. Don't need to say that. Uh, he's done a great deal to protect women. Again, not what you say when someone's accused by women. Asked if she believes the women, Pelosi said, I don't know who they are. Do you? They have not come forward. So one has not come forward because of a confidentiality agreement in the settlement. And if John Conyers wants, he can release her from that confidentiality agreement so she can speak. And yeah. he should do that. Another one has not come forward. Another one filed a lawsuit, another woman that was later dropped, and she has not come forward. A third woman has come forward and gone on the record in the Washington Post, Melanie Sloan, who said that she does not believe she was sexually harassed, but was verbally abused and harassed throughout her time in Conyers' office, including one time when he called her into his office and he was sitting there in his underwear. Which, you know. We should also note that these confidentiality agreements exist because the House has a terrible way of dealing with cases about sexual harassment. 
Yes. Whereas everything is hidden. The institution protects the members. Every, the institution protects the members. The, they pay for the members to have a lawyer. Uh, the accusers have to get a lawyer themselves. And then when they're settled, the public doesn't know about the settlement, even though the fact that the public's taxpayer dollars are used to pay the settlement. And if, Which and, seems to me like something that should be changed immediately. And during the, the process, you're expected to go to work. You're expected to show up at work as normal. Like if you've sort of brought a, if you've brought an allegation, you're expected mm-hmm. to, as this is all unfolding, just work every day. Uh, so we should yeah. say, so right after that appearance, there was an uproar, as there should have been. And Pelosi's office immediately put out a statement. Almost simultaneously, Conyers announced that he was stepping down from the Judiciary Committee, which he is, of which he is the ranking member, while the investigation proceeds. And Pelosi in the statement said... Zero tolerance means consequences. I have asked for an ethics investigation, and Conyers has agreed to step aside as ranking member. No matter how great an individual's legacy, it is not a license for harassment. If she had just given that answer on Meet the Press, we probably would not be talking about this today. So she clarified it. So great. I think the question is, because some people are saying, no, 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 Conyers should resign right now. I do think, and Tommy, we talked about this sort of last week when we were talking about these ethics investigations. Whether the ethics committee investigation process is good enough or not, I do think we need some sort of process here when someone is accused of sexual harassment because we've now had this problem where for the longest time women don't come forward because either men don't believe them or don't want to believe them or powerful men silence them. And so no one was hurt and a lot of people didn't come forward. And I don't think we can go from there to a situation where someone is accused of sexual harassment and then Twitter is the judge and jury of what happens, right? Like, I think there needs to be a an ethics committee process, an investigative process with teeth that is bipartisan, that is swift, that is credible, that brings justice. You know, like, I, I do yeah, think we a, need something. Well, there's here. a bill that's been put forward to try to fix the process, which is clearly, clearly broken. I think what you're saying is exactly right. I think that f- because for so long there was no process that made sense, that there was no way for allegations to be taken seriously, we're kind of learning about all these things that happened over many, many years in which there were absolutely no consequences at all. And we're processing that sort of as a culture. You know, Van Jones was on yeah. Love It or Leave It, and he and he talked about his work with with prisoners and how and talked about his work with people that have done terrible things. And he talked about the difference between an on-off switch and a dimmer switch. And I think we're at the beginning of figuring that out, right? What Connors is accused of is different than what Roy Moore is accused of, right? How we react to these things does require us to look at each case individually. And they hold different positions. Yeah. In Roy Moore's case, the election is the judgment on what ultimately happens here. Conyers holds office, and there needs to be a process for office holders who are accused of these things to figure out what happens next. So, like, I can't imagine a scenario where John Conyers should keep his seat and right. not resign. I can't. I can't but I, I at least want the process to tell us that. And it's not a call for a bullshit process. It is a swift, credible, bipartisan process, and it needs to happen very fast. And I think that the urgency, that there is incredible urgency in getting to the right outcome. But I think that because we're all online, because these things sort of play out on Twitter, that there's Twitter time, yeah. and, and the urgency of Twitter time is actually completely unimportant. It well, is the urgency of Twitter time is five seconds. Right. It is very, very important that Nancy Pelosi gets her statement right. It is less important and does not make her equivalent to people defending Roy Moore that she fucked up on Meet the Press and then had to fix it later, you know? Right. She's not Donald Trump. Right. All right. 
Let's move on to a, a section that I titled, A Look at Our Budding Cacistocracy, mm-hmm. which is the word used for a government run by the worst, least qualified, and unscrupulous <laughs> citizens. <It's- laughs> this is where I jammed a whole bunch of things in that we could talk about. First, I want to talk about a story. Tommy, this particularly got you annoyed over the weekend. You were texting about it, uh, which is uh, Rex Tillerson gutting the State Department, yeah. which is, I think, particularly egregious because it is so hard to get people to care about the story Why don't you talk about it a little bit? Rex Tillerson has sort of made it his sole job to cut jobs at the State Department, to cut the funding of the agency he leads by as much as a third, which Congress has told him is ridiculous. And I think we don't have a great sense as a country about what diplomats do. So, I mean, I just think you have to remember that diplomats allow us to project power all around the world. Mm -hmm. They're not fancy people in Paris hosting cocktail parties. They're people in countries like Pakistan that are constantly liaising with the government, that are meeting with opposition parties, that are providing us unbelievably important intelligence about what's happening on the ground that we can't get from the CIA or other places because these are sort of like diplomatic conversations and also like observations about political and economic things that are happening. Like, There was all this talk about how we missed, quote unquote, the Arab Spring. There was no phone you could intercept to know that a fruit vendor in Tunisia was going to light himself on fire uh, and start this regional upheaval. You could have a really credible diplomat who was out in the field meeting with people, seeing this tension boiling over and thinking that like this was a tinderbox. So that's when we talk about like how this is going to weaken us abroad and it, it seems like there's no real constituency for slashing state other than they think the military is cool and tough and let's talk about that. And uh, liberal weenies work in the State Department. So let's gut that agency. But it is harming us. And every, it's, a threat, it's a direct threat to yeah. our national security. I mean, and you right? have people like Michael it's Hayden. Us. Michael Hayden, who ran, he was the CIA director for Bush, is talking about how dangerous this will be. Four-star generals, every military commander you talk to talks about how much they like working in partnership with the State Department. It's just, it's baffling. It's baffling. So they were cutting uh, embassy security, too. Yeah. I mean, again, like, in case you thought Benghazi was anything more than just a political bullshit attack, like, Tillerson wouldn't even meet with the person that heads up the embassy security division at the State Department. Blew him off. It reminds me a little bit of how... Fox News can be a conspiracy, a zone of conspiracy, because it's protected by the truthful journalism that kind of holds up our whole democracy around it. Like, we live in the protection of an international order that we built over half a century and was not perfect. The United States makes terrible and evil mistakes, but it created a period of growth and stability and positive change unrivaled in human history. And they don't respect it. They yeah. don't they don't respect it. And even though, you know, Donald Trump's fortune, which he has cobbled together internationally, has depended on that order. Same for all the various benefactors here. They just refuse to see it. it sucks. Uh, the other agency uh, that is in uh, the middle of some turmoil right now is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Richard Cordray was the director of the CFPB, as the acronym goes. And he has stepped down to run for governor of Ohio. He has appointed Leandra English as the deputy director. The 2010 Dodd-Frank Act says, which set up the Consumer Bureau, says the deputy director shall serve as acting director in the absence or unavailability of the director. Trump, however, decided to install Mick Mulvaney, who's the head of the Office of Management and Budget, which is a White House office, 
which is under the White House, saying that the Federal Vacancies Act allows the president to install a temporary acting head of any agency who's already been confirmed by the Senate. And so what happened? Both of them showed up at work today. Mick Mulvaney has called this agency a sick, sad joke, uh, <laughs> but he did bring them donuts this morning. He also sent out a memo telling Here people, you go. Here you go, you useless weasels. <laughs> Here you have go, you anti-American bureaucrats. <laughs> this one's got jelly. Have a, have a cruller, bureaucrats. <laughs> like, an industry that does nothing but help protect us from, like, giant institutions, right? Like, big banks. Now the agency has returned... Tommy, you're right. $11.9 billion to nearly 30 million consumers from banks and financial institutions and debt collectors and predatory lenders that tried to cheat them. Yeah, and Mulvaney's making an ATM as deputy. Like, he doesn't give a shit. It is ridiculous. And so we're going to talk all about this, but we have an expert who's going to be joining us to tell us all about this. It is the It is the woman who set up the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in the first place. Not just set it up, it was her brainchild when she was a Harvard professor before she was a U.S. Senator. Elizabeth Warren is going to join us and talk all about this. So when we come back, we will have the Senator from Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America's already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back with the Senator for Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren. Senator Warren, how are you today? 
I'm doing good. How are you guys doing? We're pretty good. We're good. Okay. Uh, Mick Mulvaney did show up at our office, too, claiming he runs this as well. Uh, <laughs> so we're trying so to figure that out. A little frustrating. And why not? I mean, once you've decided, you can show up anywhere and just declare yourself in charge. You know, what else is he going to hit next? Elementary I, schools? You know. I can't believe uh-huh. he used the donut trick. That was our trick for you when you were on exactly. Pod Save America. We brought you Dunkin' Donuts, and now he thinks he exactly. can stroll in there. That's right. It's unbelievable. That's right. And you guys, you know, I put this on you because <laughs> you taught him the power of the donut. <laughs> Dunkin' Donuts is yeah. in our DNA. You bet. So just to start off, let's talk about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and why it matters and what it's accomplished so far because it is, like so many things in Washington, unfortunately abbreviated all the time and I saw someone on Twitter seeing, you know, CFPB, and they were like, "Is that does that have to do with the college football playoffs?" So, um, <laughs> talk about what it is. Okay, so let's start when it didn't exist. Okay, mm-hmm. so back when in the bad old days, like in the run up to the financial crisis, there were all these different laws that were supposed to be out there, consumer protection laws, to make sure that people didn't get cheated on mortgages and credit cards and so on. The problem was all of those laws were spread among about seven different agencies in Washington. And for none of those agencies was consumer protection their first job. So, you know, the guys at the Fed were like, we do monetary policy because we're cool, you know. (laughs) And the guys over at the OCC were like, we make sure the banks stay profitable and so on and so on through the agencies. And the consequence of that is that consumers, starting, you know, a whole lot in the 80s and then much more in the 90s and then into the 2000s, just keep getting tricked and trapped and pinched and cheated on one financial deal after another, in particular on home mortgages. And so people end up with these terrible home mortgages. We know the banks packaged them up, made a bazillion dollars selling them, a bazillion dollars repackaging them. And then it turned out those little mortgages were kind of like grenades with the pins pulled out. And they started blowing up. And when they blew up, they took down the whole economy. So part of what President Obama did when he comes into office is he says, you know, we got to get the economy stabilized. That was his first job. But he said, we got to change the rules so stuff like this doesn't happen again. And the idea was, let's create an agency, the consumer agency, and let's pick up all those consumer protection laws and maybe fill in a couple of gaps and put one agency, make them responsible for making sure to stand up to the big Wall Street banks and to make sure that consumers just don't get cheated. So that's what the president was able to sign into law as part of Dodd-Frank. He asked me to come in, and I set the agency up for about a year. Once the agency was up and running, I went back up to Massachusetts. And that little agency has been out there doing its job. It's kind of, you know, it's the little engine that could. And so far... In the six years that it's been up and running, it has forced these giant financial institutions, I hope you're sitting down, to return more than $12 billion directly to people they cheated. And it's handled about a million, million two complaints against the companies. And that's begun to change the world. It means not that everything's perfect, 
but it means there's really a cop on the beat so that families can take out a mortgage or a credit card or a student loan and know that they've at least got a fighting chance to have a level playing field and that they're not just going to get robbed when it happens. So that's what the agency has been up to. And it's it's been pretty darn successful, which is why it's pretty darn unpopular in some corners. And it's pretty user-friendly too, right, for a government agency. Yep. I know that there's there's basically just a hotline you can call up if you feel like you've been cheated by a credit card company or bank or payday lender, and you can reach someone and they, they take care of your claim. Oh, call up. You are so old school. I am. You can actually <laughs> just go online. Even better. And do, even better. And in fact, let me let me give the little plug here. If you think you've been cheated, like your bank popped a $10 fee on you or your student lender charged you the wrong interest rate, anything that you think went wrong, you go to CFPB, cfpb.gov, and one of the things that'll pop up is complaints. You can click on that complaint button and get a little form, fill it out, and here's how it works. It's actually really cool. It goes straight to the agency. You give them all the information. The agency then tags it and sends it straight to the bank or mortgage company or credit card company or whatever it is that you're complaining about, and a clock starts running. And the agency keeps up with whether or not they respond to you and how they respond and whether or not you're satisfied by that response. And here's a really cool feature. If you want to, you go there and look, and you can sort the information on complaints. You can find out which banks get the most complaints. You can find out what kind of products gender engender the most complaints. You can see who gets the best response rate. That is, if someone's complained, does the, does the company come back and fix the problem and do it quickly? So what this is really about, this is the part I love, it actually is making markets work better. So better lenders, uh, the ones that don't cheat their customers, actually don't they, they have a chance now to say, hey, I'm doing better than those other guys. I don't show up in this complaint database. Those guys over there are the ones who've had thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of complaints against them. Not us. We're the good guys. Come do business with us. This is a way, ultimately, to empower consumers and to drive markets so they're more efficient. Don't you just love hearing a Democrat say that? <laughs> that is good. Senator, you told the Washington Post uh, that if, if Mulvaney takes over uh, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, it would change every calculation that every giant bank makes in their executive suite when deciding just how close to come to breaking the law. What did you mean mm -hmm. by that? Well, think of it this way. Um, one of the jobs of the consumer agency is to enforce the law. Now, law enforcement has a lot of decisions that get made behind closed doors. And over the last five years, like I was just talking about, six years, uh, with Rich Cordry at the helm, the consumer agency has gone after some pretty darn big fish, like you remember Wells Fargo mm -hmm. uh, and the fake account scandal and plenty of other big lenders and been pretty aggressive in leaning into them and saying, you cheated people here, you cheated people there, and here's the deal. You're both going to have to give back the money and pay a penalty for cheating. You put a different director involved, and the question is, you got a guy like Mulvaney who's already said 
He doesn't believe in the agency. He doesn't think they ought to be doing that kind of thing. How does the calculation change inside the consumer agency, the part you and I can't see, the part that takes place behind closed doors? How many investigations don't get pursued or get pursued lightly or only gently? How many times do they say, well, let's be a little easier. Let's let them just apologize and back up. Let's, you know, give them a little slap on the wrist, whatever. And as soon as the big banks, the big corporations say, oh, (laughs) new cop on the beat, very different from the old cop, then their calculation about whether to, you know, run close to the edge by adding an extra $15 fee on this or recalculating interest rates or mm, not supervising your employees about whether they're opening fake accounts or whatever other kind of scam they come up with. It just changes. That's the whole point is that guys who are driven to say profit, 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 And we'll go as close to the line as we can, so long as we think we're not going to get any pushback from uh, a cop on the beat. Those are the guys who are going to take advantage of consumers. And how do I know that? I know it because they did. I know it because they do. And so if the agency is run by somebody who thinks the big problem is those poor giant banks are being pushed too hard not to cheat their customers, if that's the change that gets made, it's going to reverberate not only through the executive suites at the big banks, it means ultimately through every household in America that now is just a little bit more likely to get cheated. So one of the things at stake here, and to your point, one of the reasons they want to put Mulvaney there is to enact that ideological agenda The agency was set up to be independent. Republicans have objected to just how independent the agency is. Can you talk a little bit about why that's important and how that impacts the legality of what Mulvaney is doing? Yep. So this is an idea that starts actually back during the Civil War. You guys ready for that? (laughs) Didn't Uh, know we were going back that far. Yeah, exactly. So that's when the first banking regulatory oversight agency is enacted into law. So Congress says, we're going to have some oversight over the banks, and they establish what becomes the Office of the Controller of the Currency. And one of the insights that Congress had even back then is, you know, if you're going after big banks, you better make it independent of Congress. Because if you can cover it kind of in the political sphere, we're not so sure they'll be as tough on the big banks as they ought to be. So the funding was set up independently. That means they're funded through fees and other mechanisms, not through the ordinary budget process. And they were given independence. The OCC, for example, has a single director. Now it's confirmed. It's nominated by the president, that director, and confirmed by Congress. But then that's it. It goes out and acts independently. Because that's what helps keep the markets honest. That's what helps keeps us safe. And we know that they're not in Washington, you know, making lots of campaign contributions in return for getting uh, less enforcement when they break the law. So that's the basic idea behind all of the regulatory agencies that oversee Uh, the financial system, the Fed, the OCC, the FDIC, the, the main regulators there. So the CFPB 
is the same kind of thing. Congress built it to be independent. The president has one power where the the CFPB is concerned, and that is to nominate the director. Then Congress has one power, and that is to confirm that director. After that, it is an independent agency, just like other independent agencies in government. Now, that doesn't mean there's no review. There's an Administrative Procedures Act. There's all kinds of things it has to do internally. But the point is to try to remove it from some political influence. So the concern right now is that Donald Trump didn't just pick somebody who hates the agency and has said that pretty publicly. He's picked somebody who already has a job working for Donald Trump and who can be removed if he doesn't do that job in a way that Donald Trump likes. And so there are a lot of folks out there who are really concerned that the real point here is not just to get somebody into the agency who can blow it up, but to get somebody into the agency who is directly beholden to Donald Trump. And now just to to kind of increase the factor of how much we ought to be worried about that. This is an interim appointment, which means uh, even under Donald Trump's calculation, under the, the Vacancies Act, it will only be for about eight months. But at the end of that eight months, they could appoint somebody else. And at the end of that eight months, somebody else and somebody else and somebody else. So what we really need here is we got to take seriously this interim appointment and make sure that the president does what he is legally entitled to do, what Congress set up, and that is to nominate a director and then have the Senate vote on that director, have the Republicans belly up to it and say whether or not they want a director that Donald Trump has picked, somebody who's pro-consumer, I hope that's the case, or somebody who's pro-bank, in which case let's call them out for it. But that Donald Trump doesn't get to manipulate this agency through the back door by claiming that he's got an interim director who works directly for him and is also running an independent agency. Yeah, so you just alluded to the more alarming development, in my opinion, which is even if Leander English wins this court fight, Trump could presumably find a Republican to appoint as director who could get 51 votes in the Senate because the Republicans control the Senate and then do the same type of damage. And then, you know, it's a five-year appointment. So why does this fight matter so much that we're engaged in right now? And what do we do about the seemingly the greater danger, which is that we have a director of the agency that is there for five years and we can't do anything about? So, look, it's both hands. One is interim could last forever, effectively. Mm -hmm. And we don't want that to happen. Nobody should want that to happen, right? Right. We want him to have to name someone and then Congress to appoint. So interim matters. It's not automatically limited. It's only limited when there's a nominee who goes forward and ultimately gets confirmed. The second part is to say, look, that's what the confirmation process is about, is Donald Trump gets to name someone and then the rest of us get to have a big public discussion about that person. Do you remember the guy, Puzder, who was named to be head of the Labor Department? Do you remember oh, yes. him? yes. Yeah, he didn't You remember he is not the Secretary <laughs> of Labor? And you remember why. People yeah. took a close look at him and said, whoa, hold on. 
And not only did he have Democratic opposition, there were Republicans who faded away and said, I'm, I'm not doing this one. And so we got a different Secretary of Labor. He might not be the guy I would choose, but he's sure in the first guy that they came up with. Or look at Betsy DeVos. She made it through. I get it. She is now Secretary of Education. But boy, are the American people paying attention to what she does. Right? right? That was a hard-fought battle, which really forced both Donald Trump and 50 Republicans to stand up and say, yeah, I'm good with a secretary of education who doesn't believe in public education. And my view is you make them get out and say that in public. And let's do the same thing around this Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Maybe they'll think twice about who they want to put in charge of it. This this is an agency, this is government that works for the people. It's not out there for the giant banks. It's not out there for the student loan scammers. It's out there for the people, and it's producing results every single day. Look, I'll put it this way. We didn't get this agency just because President Obama said he wanted it. The banks were totally opposed to it. They spent more than a million dollars a day lobbying against Dodd-Frank, and right at the center of their bullseye was no consumer agency. But the president said, we're going to do this agency. He stood behind it. He stood firm when, I'll be blunt, people in his own administration were like, yeah, how about we throw that under the bus in returns for some other things we'd like to do? And the president said, no. Not (laughs) Not these three. No. (laughs) But he was great on this. He stood strong. And here's the deal. People all across this country got engaged. And that's how we got the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So now it's proven what it can do. Now it's out there fighting on behalf of families. Now it's got a lot bigger fan base than it had before. But that means we got to step up and defend this agency. We got to be in this fight. We got to be in this fight to make sure that Donald Trump follows the law and doesn't just get to put his guy in and override what Congress said in Dodd-Frank would be the succession plan. And when the time comes that Donald Trump nominates someone, we need to make our voices heard. If we like the person, great. And if we don't, we need to be loud. So just uh, talking about this sort of legal issue, it feels like it's already been diffused into Oh, liberals say it's uh, English and conservatives say it's Mulvaney. You know, you were there at the inception of this agency and the reasons it was made independent. Dodd-Frank was written with a secession plan. How clear cut is this legal argument? Is there any validity to the argument that the Trump lawyers are making that he has the right to make this appointment? So, look, all I can tell you is how I see it. I understand that there are lawyers on both sides. That's why they should go to court. But I'm just going to give you straight how I see it. There was a point earlier in the drafting of the CFPB where it said, we'll use the Vacancies Act to fill in the blank when a director is not available. And that was deliberately taken out and new language was put in to say, nope, here's going to be the deal. There's a director, and if the director is unavailable, deputy director has the powers and duties of the director, becomes the acting director. So in other words, 
you couldn't ask for something more deliberate. Congress thought about doing it through the Vacancies Act and said, nope, what we're going to do is we're going to do our own succession plan. At the same time, the Vacancies Act also has its legislative history. As you know, the Vacancies Act dates back decades. And what it says is that it applies to all of the agencies that are in place at the moment that the Vacancies Act passed. But going forward, the Vacancies Act applies unless Congress decides to do its own succession plan, which is exactly what they did in the case of the consumer agency. So, you know, don't listen to me. Larry Tribe uh, jumped on this first and said he thinks that the statute is pretty clear here. And a lot of uh, uh, lawyers have jumped in to say so. Now, I get it that Donald Trump's uh, administration says, no, 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 no. Uh, they get to, quote, fill a vacancy. But look, there ain't no vacancy here. Once you read Dodd-Frank, the very minute, the second that Rich Cordry said, bang, I'm out of here. I have now resigned. Goodbye. At that instant, by operation of the law that Congress wrote, Leandra English became the acting director. So there's no, there's not yeah. like this moment of vacancy where Donald Trump gets to jump in. And if he's going to claim, well, he gets to use the Vacancies Act here, it really is where you guys started this, what was it, 20 minutes ago. And and that is, what else do they get to come in and declare themselves in charge? Right. right. That's what makes it seem so dangerous. Yeah. Yep. One last question. We'll let you go. The government runs out of money on December 8th. Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan need Democratic votes to keep it open. Under what condition should Democrats give Republicans the votes they need to keep the government open? What's on the list of demands for you? Should we pass the DREAM Act? Should we fund Obamacare? And if Republicans refuse to do those things, should the Democrats withhold all of their votes and shut the government down? So look, we are in the middle of negotiations, but let me put it this way. The President of the United States said that Congress should vote on the DREAM Act. And I'm with him. Congress should vote on the DREAM Act. We should do it right now. We don't have to do this later in a budget act. We could do it this week. Put the DREAM Act on the floor in the Senate. Put the DREAM Act on the floor, a clean DREAM Act in the House. I think the votes are there in both the House and the Senate. Let's pass it. Let's send it on to the president and let him sign it into law. After all, the United States made a promise to these young people. When President Obama said, come out of the shadows and we will give you a chance to go to school, to take jobs, to join the military, to serve your country, to be a part of the only home that most of you have ever known. It was the right thing to do. And it it was a commitment. He committed our country. And I believe we have to honor that commitment. So for me, I'm ready to vote on the DREAM Act right now. If the Republicans don't want to put it in the budget, I'm cool. But I want to vote on the DREAM Act before we get to the budget. And then we can sit and do all of our numbers around the budget. We can talk about the other things that need to be in there, of course. We have to support the Affordable Care Act. Uh, the American people do not want us to roll back health care coverage for 25 million Americans. I'm ready for that fight. But what I'd like to do is let's honor our promise to the DREAMers first.
Senator, before you even do that, I really would urge you to go get some Dunkin' Donuts, get in the car, drive to CFPB. That's really all that you need to take over. You have the same legal claim as Mick Mulvaney. It, it, you were supposed to run it from the beginning. I think it's I think it's time. <laughs> you guys are fabulous. <laughs> donut on me. Thank you for joining us. Thank we you, appreciate Senator. it. And, uh, and good luck take with the care. fight ahead. All right. Take care. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com. Enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. Reclaim your time now that you can listen to four weekly ads-free episodes across Pod Save America and Pod Save the World. There's never been a better time to join Cricket's Friend of the Pod subscription community. The marketing people say that listening ads-free saves you up to two hours of ad listening each month. Imagine the possibilities. You know what you can do with two extra hours a week? You can listen, listen to, to two- more podcasts. Exactly. Ah, two more episodes. That's yeah. two more episodes. Yeah. Get more stuff in your brain. Yeah. Get more stuff in that more brain. More stuff and content in there like, yeah, uh, like you're a foie gras. <laughs> Become a member today. Go to cricket.com slash friends now to learn more. On the pod today, we are joined by one of the great legal minds of our time, Obama's former regulatory czar, and the author of the new book, Impeachment, A Citizen's Guide, Cass Sunstein. Cass, how you doing? I'm great. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Hi, Cass. Hi. It's a pleasure to have you on. <laughs> it is a pleasure. Okay, so you write a book at a clip of like uh, one per week, I think. You write books like we tweet. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking, I'm on your Amazon page. It's really unbelievable. Well, most of my books are 20 letters or they're short books. Yeah, they're right. really tiny. Right, right. That's smart. Uh, what made you decide to write this book on impeachment? 
You know, we bought a house in Concord, and while I've studied the Constitution for a long time, hadn't really thought about the American Revolution, and I'm kind of surrounded by artifacts of the Revolution, and that made me think, well, what was impeachment about? And if you read the Declaration of Independence, it's completely like articles of, of impeachment. And if you look at the history in the 18th century, it's two ideas are on fire in our little country. One is self-government, and the other is the equal dignity of human beings. And I think we've missed that slice, the slice between Paul Revere's ride and when the Constitution got ratified. And kind of the best window onto it is impeachment. That was the uh, shots fired around the world that everybody heard in 1740s and 50s when we started impeaching people who were following orders from the Crown. And that, that gave a, a window onto our country. I think it gives you really a sense of what American exceptionalism is, and uh, that's what got me into impeachment. So, Katz, I've seen you describe the book as about our country, about our struggle for self-government, and the relation between impeachment and that struggle. What does that mean, and what does that history tell us about this moment in time when we have a president that a lot of people would like to see impeached? Well, it tells us we're the boss. So that's the first thing. Uh, there's no they. We don't have a king. We wouldn't have had a constitution, by the way, without impeachment. So the first thing is uh, we the people. Those aren't just you know words. Those are a commitment, a, a promise. And the second thing, which I think really connects what happened in the founding period with the civil rights movement, with the movement for gay rights and same-sex marriage, with the women's movement, with what's happening now with respect to sexual harassment, is there was an idea we're all not subjects, we're citizens, and the idea of equal dignity was on the loose. And impeachment, you know, it's right near that part of the Constitution that forbids titles of nobility, and that's not a coincidence that the idea is that you don't have any princes or kings here. And you know, for those who are concerned about uh, the current person who's doing various things from the White House, uh, it's completely legitimate to say, you know, uh, we're in charge and there was a war fought uh, to put us there and we have some mechanisms to make sure that's real. So you've seen this debate about collusion, emoluments and other issues where there's this question as to whether it's just a political wrong or a legal wrong. And, you know, then you see the debate turn to what high crimes and misdemeanors should mean, whether it needs to be, you know, a legal crime for some for a president to be impeached. Where do you fall down on that when someone does something that may be egregious, that violates the spirit of the Constitution, but may not be technically illegal? What do you think? Yeah, I follow Hamilton and Madison. And they were completely clear. Name drops. <laughs> I follow. I never met them. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So, uh, so they're um, they're not ambiguous on this. And are you talking about the musical? Up... It's so weird to take your guidance from a musical. That's well, I, dispiriting. I tried to write a little scene for the musical, and I kind of sent it to Hamilton, New York, New York, and I haven't gotten a response yet. There's a little scene, and in the little scene, it quotes from Hamilton from the Federalist Papers. Who says it's an abuse of public trust doesn't have to be a crime is that the start of a rap lyric, do you think <laughs> it can be Almost. it can be kind yeah. of the way i said it makes you think <laughs> it would completely work yeah so just the the rhythm of my own cadence so the <laughs> they could do it the hamilton cast could do it but the idea that hamilton was pushing which was not unusual to him they all thought this was if the president abuses the pardon power, and here Madison said that, that's an impeachable offense. If the president procures a treaty by lying, and this was said by 
by a prominent founder during the ratification debates, and lying to the Senate to get the treaty that way, that's an impeachable offense. And by the way, that's not a crime. If the president invades civil rights and civil liberties, it was said in Massachusetts, that's an impeachable offense. And these weren't contested claims. So the idea is that if you have an abuse of presidential power, that's an impeachable offense, and it doesn't matter if it's a crime. Yeah, that's interesting. I heard you talk about how you think that what happened with Comey uh, and how Trump fired him and why he fired him is probably not an impeachable offense, but that firing Mueller would be or any abuse of the pardon power to cover up for how he fired Comey would be impeachable. Can you explain that? Yeah, so the Comey discharge, um, at least there's uh, an account which is that any new president after what happened would be reasonable in getting rid of him, not because he's a bad guy. I think he has integrity, though he made some pretty terrible mistakes, but because there's just a history there and a fresh start is okay. And given the complexity of everything, to fire him isn't isn't an abuse of the authority the president has to choose his own FBI director, not necessarily. But if you fire someone who's investigating you or your White House apparatus or your campaign for uh, potential interaction, let's say, with the Russians, that's um, getting really near the line. And I think the way to put it is the impeachment clause, actually at the convention, the talk was about procuring the office by corrupt means, and there the specific reference was corrupting the Electoral College. But working with a country who's not our friends to get uh, office, that's uh, that's kind of core impeachable offense. And then if you're, which is, I'm not claiming that happened, but if you discharge someone who's investigating that, that kind of self-insulation, that's kind of what the whole separation of power system was designed to ensure we didn't have. And the content of the separation of power system meant the House of Representatives can impeach the guy if he does something of that uh, extreme nature. What would you say if a president uh, was trying to stop an FBI investigation into his national security advisor and thus fired the FBI director after he had told the FBI director to please let this go, let this guy off the hook who might be in some trouble? You know, Where does obstruction of justice sort of fall? I know obstruction of justice on its own doesn't necessarily, you know, you probably don't think it leads to, it's an impeachable offense, but in general, what kind of obstruction of justice do you think would? Okay, so, so if, the, if the president decides I'm going to go on vacation in Paris for mm-hmm. the next six months, that's impeachable, though it's not a crime. If the president obstructs justice by saying that someone who violated the speeding laws didn't, and that was a lie and designed to protect his friend, that would be very bad, but it wouldn't be impeachable. So obstruction of justice is is a grave act. We need to know what kind of thing is the obstruction of justice about. If it's about protecting one of his own advisors, depends on what exactly is he doing. So if it's enlisting the apparatus of the federal government to prevent uh, an investigation of national security advisor for wrongdoing, that's kind of a grayish zone, but that's I mean that as a pretty harsh talk because impeachment is 
you know, there's a very high bar for impeachment. So if you're in the gray zone there, it's pretty bad. So I think any White House would be well advised to tell the president, don't go anywhere near there if you're trying to prevent a legitimate, otherwise legitimate investigation into one of your top people for what might be serious wrongdoing. So, you know, under President Bush, I'm very confident. President Obama, I'm completely confident. And uh, any number, President Reagan, completely confident that top people would say, don't go there. And one of the things that would be said in explaining why don't go there is that it's getting uh, toward the impeachable territory. It's not as horrific as firing someone who's investigating you and your apparatus itself for interaction, let's say, with an unfriendly foreign country. Uh, Still not good. So here on this pod, you know, we've told people not to be waiting for, you know, sort of the impeachment fairy to come save them from from Donald Trump. Impeachment clause. Impeachment clause, right. Oh, there you go, Tommy. You're saying Merry Uh, Christmas again. (laughs) Tim Um, Allen was terrible in that. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, we can talk about all of these legal, you know, reasons for or against impeachment, but at the end of the day, it seems like it's a political question for the House of Representatives. Do you have any, you did a lot of research on this, do you have any insight into you know, what the founders thought or how they hoped to prevent impeachment from purely being used as a political tool that was sort of based on, you know, the partisan passions of the moment. Completely. So the high crimes and misdemeanor standard is um, specifically designed to ensure that whether it's a Republican or Democrat, you don't impeach the person just because you think they're terrible, even if you think their policies are kind of ruining the country. You can't impeach someone for that. Uh, The high crimes and misdemeanor standard doesn't mean it has to be a crime. It means it has to be a pretty awful abuse of the power you have by virtue of being president. And that can be intruding on civil rights and civil liberties. It can be abuse of the pardon power. It can be making war. Those are all candidates for impeachable offenses. But the political disagreement, even if it's very sharp, is not legitimate. I think for those who are, you know, especially up in arms about President Trump, that's actually a good thing, because it's a reality check saying that we should, whatever we think of the guy, have a neutrality principle in our heads, which means would we want this person to be impeached for that act if he was our guy? And if it's something like, you know, what we've been talking about, preventing investigation of self by firing someone who's engaged in a legitimate investigation of something that would be independently impeachable, then I hope we'd all say, even if it's our guy, that guy has to go if he's doing that. So the I would say it's not fully right to say this is a political issue, the issue of impeachment. That is, if a high crime and misdemeanor has been committed uh, for this or any future president, TBD, we need to um, insist that if it has been committed, it's not a matter of discretion whether to impeach the person. My reading of the founding period is, is you got to do it. You can't say he's, he's our bomb and he gets to stay. You're legally obliged to say he's our bomb, but he's done something so horrific he has to leave. Now, it might be the political reality is it's going to be a very heavy burden on we the people to get our representatives to do that. But for Nixon, it basically worked. The key Republicans left him because the grounds for impeachment were so palpably there. So in the Federalist Papers, is there anything about a billionaire funding a petition for impeachment <laughs> to get his ID numbers up? 
vis-a-vis Tom Steyer, or is, or is there precedent for it? Yes, that's in the Federalist number 71. <laughs> that's you know, the billionaire back then meant trillionaire, so they understood it as really a lot more money than Tom Steyer has. I should say that Mr. Steyer, I really admire his commitment on climate change, and he's done great things. Impeachment, we should have you know, kind of reverence toward the institution and and think we need an act. And just to, I, I get a little of sense from Mr. Steyer that it's he's such a bum, he has to go. And that's not what the plan is about. Cass, in 2007, so 25 Cass Sunstein completed novels ago <laughs> or, or nonfiction works, you came to Iowa to canvas. You were joined by a Pulitzer Prize winning expert on genocide, an economist named Austin Goolsby. And the first door you went to, you were asked a simple question, when is the caucus? And despite that brain power, none of you knew. Do you want to formally no. apologize to the Iowa team <laughs> right here today for that lack of preparation? Awful, but I'll, I'll tell you, when I didn't know the answer, I had a little political skill, which is I saw the, the voter had a Labrador Retriever, and I actually love Labrador Retrievers, so I kind of sat down with the Labrador Retriever, and and, and we got that vote. Congrats on your puppy, that, by the way. Yeah, I saw, I saw pictures all over had, Twitter. And so what I want to say to that Iowa voter is thank you for not only having Labrador Retriever, but for, you know, bonding with me such that you actually turned Iowa for uh, president-to-be Obama. Oh, that's a good story. Good ending. Imagine that. You get a knock on the door, and it's Cass Sunstein, <laughs> Samantha Power, and Austin Goolsby. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, clueless about where to go. <laughs> I'm sure they were like, oh, I lo- I've read all of your works. I know all about you guys. You're, you're definitely not academic strangers to me. <laughs> yeah, no, they, Austin, Austin's papers in the Quarterly Journal of Economics, they were especially enthusiastic about <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a real page turner. Cat Sunstein, thank you for joining the pod. Please come back again soon. Everyone, go check out Cass's new book, Impeachment, A Citizen's Guide, and so many other wonderful works by it, Cass Sunstein. In a year when you come back about your book about what happens when a president refuses to recognize his impeachment, uh, <laughs> we'll probably have a lot of important questions then. Yeah. <laughs> thank you very much. Thanks, Enjoy yeah, Cass. All right. Thanks to Cass Sunstein and Elizabeth Warren for joining us today. This is our outro. Anything else that we wanted to bring up? Jared's in some trouble. Very interesting. Some Several pieces all in a row. Uh, Gabe Sherman actually had the first piece about the uh, incredible shrinking Jared, and then the New York <laughs> Times and the Washington Post had them on the same day. Someone is doing some spinning to protect our boy. To protect, yeah, because he's, they're saying he's, his role is being diminished in the White House now. Jared doesn't, his big portfolio of like Middle East peace and, you know, saving technology and whatever else <laughs> I love is not really panning out. My favorite part of one of those profiles was when they said that it was Jared's idea to maybe to fire Comey. Then, and, oh, and then he was pretty happy when, when Mueller started a special counsel because he said, oh, once Mueller's involved, maybe these congressional committees will stop investigating us and Mueller will just go do his thing. I love the idea. Tells you that Jared doesn't really. <laughs> not the brightest no, bulb. He's not the brightest yeah. bulb, is he? I love the idea that when you remove something from a portfolio, from Jared's portfolio, it's really just someone walking into his office and kind of removing a little tab from a folder because he hasn't actually. <laughs> Done anything. <laughs> yeah. And it could be related maybe to the uh, the news we got on Thanksgiving Day. Great story by the New York Times. New York Times had an interesting weekend. Tough story about the Nazis. Great story about uh, reporters working on Thanksgiving Day to tell us that lawyers for 
Michael Flynn, President Trump's former national security advisor, notified the president's legal team in recent days that they could no longer discuss the special counsel's investigation. According to four people involved in the case, an indication that Mr. Flynn is cooperating with prosecutors or negotiating a deal. That seems like a very, very big deal. It just... (laughs) Because Flynn Flynn was just so caught... I mean, he just was so screwed. And somebody, and also, by the way, the fact that Flynn's son is involved means like it's not just his own future on the line; it's his family's future maximum on the line. leverage. And the reason this is such a big deal is Mueller's only going to go for the deal and not prosecute Flynn if Flynn can turn on someone higher up the food chain. And there are not a lot of people left above Michael Flynn. There's the President of the United States and Jared. And I don't know. Who else? Don Jr.? The Mercers and Putin. (laughs) (laughs) This is a hell of an outro, but just breaking news. Roy Moore just got a GOP write-in challenger, a Marine colonel with some impressive credentials, but few political roots, according to Sam Stein. So, boy, stay tuned. Let's just stick on this outro all day. (laughs) Let's record. Love it. Start reading the tweets. Also, also. (laughs) Read the tweets aloud. Guys, the descendants of uh, English tyrants have gotten engaged. (laughs) (laughs) She's from L.A. She's from L.A.? Yeah, American. He's a, you do not know much about this, huh? I don't click on it because we won the war. <laughs> <laughs> Emily made fun of me for not knowing much What's about this. What's her name? Megan Markle? And then people on Twitter were, were hoping that you would rant about it. She was on Suits. I really... She was on Suits, yeah. Elijah's now videoing this because he's like, this is the content that's going to get some clicks. Forget about want. the CPFB stuff you guys so, have been doing. Rich so stopped recording like five couple, minutes ago. A <laughs> couple notes on the British family. Uh, all their assets should be seized and given away. That's one. Uh, t- <laughs> if you've made it all the way to the outro. It's a special, uh, special two, Easter egg for Easter you. Egg. Two, uh, it was really weird when William and Harry traded spots as heartthrob. You know, uh, William was the heartthrob. Then all of a sudden, Harry's like, "No, you're not. I'm the heartthrob now." You don't think that I'm was like a, a hairline? You don't know. Who, you know who knows thing. the cause? I never care about a royal wedding, though I do like the crown. So that's odd. That's a contradiction. Right. I think that I think we've wrapped up everything. Then great. We'll see y'all later. Here's to Roy Moore's write-in challenger. Um, Mulvaney's going to be here in about half an hour with some donuts, and he says he runs Crooked Media now. (laughs) (laughs) Mulvaney's sitting in the chair in the studio with with Pundit and Leo on on his lap. Yeah, I checked, and uh, actually, this is the president's option, and so now I am the host. I am Mick Mulvaney. I am a host of Pod Save America. These are my dogs. This is my office. It's all mine. I am Mick Mulvaney. All right, this is Mick Mulvaney signing off. (laughs) Bye, guys. (laughs) 